My name is Jenna and I'm here to help you do all the hard things. I'm a licensed professional counselor with nearly 10 years of clinical and research experience working with people who have some of the most debilitating OCD and anxiety in the world. I'm also a mom, a personal trainer, and a lover of modern spirituality. My goal is to bring you all the research, guidance, and encouragement you need to help you remember and know how strong you truly are. Now let's get to it. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of All the Hard Things. I am here with someone who I am so excited to hear from and just get his expertise about. So um, this is Dr. Jesse Spiegel. Um, He's licensed in California and New York, and he specializes in OCD treatment. Um, And today, you guys, we're actually going to talk about something that I've never talked about on my podcast before. It's something that both personally and professionally, I just don't feel that equipped to talk about. So I'm really excited to learn from just a personal perspective but also to be able to give you guys something that we have never talked about before. We're going to talk about OCD in the family. We're going to talk about kids and parents and how confusing all of it can get when the child or adolescent has OCD. We're going to talk about ways to make OCD treatment more palatable for the kids and for the family and other little tips and tricks that Jesse has learned along the way that I don't ever use along the way because this stuff makes even me anxious. It makes It's like a, an area of mind that I don't feel too comfortable comfortable with. So um, Dr. Spiegel, Jesse, thank you so much for being here. Um, why don't you tell us really quickly, like how you got interested in this work and um, kind of how you came to want to be involved in uh, OCD treatment? Yeah. Well, thank you, Jenna. I'm very excited to to join um, your podcast. I, I've listened to many episodes and uh, you do a really a lot of great work. Um, so as far as kind of my foray into uh, to treating OCD, it I had um, I, I'm originally from the East Coast. I'm from Washington D.C. I did my doctorate in Philadelphia, and then I went to New York for my fellowship. And to make a whole long story short, I then moved to to Los Angeles. And while um, I was in Los Angeles, I uh, was able to connect with Dr. Sarah Hyder, who's uh, an expert in treating OCD and anxiety disorders. And um, she is actually the one who trained me and and really led to me developing my skill set and in, in, in treating kids and adults. And um, really, what uh, what drew me in as far as working with kids with teenagers is really I was able to see firsthand um, how OCD doesn't impact just the sufferer it really impacts the entire family unit and likewise i was able to see that really with the appropriate interventions with exposure response prevention with really just getting the right treatment helping parents learn to reduce accommodating behaviors the whole system was able to change kids were able to feel more confident and parents were 
not catastrophizing as much anymore. And they were starting to feel hopeful again. And, and just really seeing that that change and just seeing how extensive it is and really just creating a new trajectory was really what drew me into this line of work. That's awesome. And yeah, like I feel like in the beginning when we work with families and children and adolescents, it can feel like there's so much to untangle, right? Like sometimes the child is motivated to get well. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes the family members are on board with doing what it is that you need them to do, like reduced accommodations. Sometimes they're not. And so it is really nice when it works out, right? Like when the family members do reduce accommodations and everyone's on the right page and everyone can kind of, you know, build that confidence. Um, I think of it like it's exposure work for the whole family. Like, um, I always tell parents, like as much as we're going to have to have your child and as much as you want your child to do these exposures and resist their compulsions, you're also going to kind of in a weird way, like have your own exposure where you're going to have to see your child be really uncomfortable and you're going to have to resist your own anxiety, reducing behaviors of jumping in and swooping in to save them or, you know, make it all better. And it's through you modeling that, right? Like, like we're really depending on the parent or the caregiver to model the willingness of that anxiety, to model the difficulty, you know, and the willingness of being able to sit with that so that hopefully we can have a fighting chance of the child being able to sit with that. So, you know, we hope it works out, but it doesn't always work out. So um, what are some of the other difficulties that I guess you see when it doesn't work out all swimmingly, right? Like when things, when the child or adolescent maybe isn't as super motivated or the parents are a little bit hesitant, like what are some of the difficulties that you run into quite frequently? Well, kind of like a first thing that I would say generally happens regardless are kids are feeling stuck they're feeling lost, they're feeling overwhelmed. They sometimes will kind of get even so lost where they'll not really know if it's them or if it's OCD. And, and you know, even if they're, you know, not wanting to do these compulsions, not wanting to do these behaviors, not at, wanting to ask for reassurance, um, they feel so compelled that it's it's just the, the loss of who they are is it's completely gone. And likewise, then from the parent's perspective, you know, they put so much time, so much energy is so, so, so difficult in being a parent. The role is is endless. It's, it really takes a lot out of you. And it's a, it's a big source of pride too. And suddenly, you know, they're looking at their kids and they're like, who, who are, their, their children do not feel like the same kid that they've known. And so they, they get confused. And this is really where OCD can just completely blur the line, get in the way of everything. And, um, and really wreak havoc. So, I mean, I'd say that that's a, a, a primary thing that I, I pretty much see regardless. Um, when, when people reach out to me, uh, they will, it will either be where, you know, they're so, everyone's worn out and, um, but, you know, they're all on board to, to get the treatment, to get the help that they need. So in this case, you know, the kid will be involved, parents will be involved. And then I always will have in those cases have it that, you know, everyone's involved in the treatment. Another alternative can be is perhaps that they've had treatment before and it hasn't worked. It hasn't been the appropriate treatment. Um, and 
or just for whatever reason, the, the child just does not want to be involved. They are sick of it. They're very anti-therapy. And now parents feel even more stuck because they're 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 told, well, if your, your kid doesn't want to be involved, then there's nothing you can do, which is definitely not the message that I want to communicate. Um, but in that in those cases, I will work more with parents alone and trying to help separate OCD from their kid and um, really try to work with them as far as reducing accommodating behaviors and, and kind of providing some type of hope and some light for them. Mm -hmm. That's so good because I feel like my mind goes right towards um, like, let's reduce accommodations. Let's break out that family accommodation scale, get a sense of like how often they're doing these things and what accommodations they're doing, you know, really hammering in the education about that. But you're right. Like there's a lot of other pieces that go into it, right? We need to make sure that they have hopefulness. We need to make sure that they're feeling supported too, because I don't know, I was telling you before my podcast started that, you know, I was with a, one of my girlfriends uh, yesterday and she was really struggling with an adult child of hers who she believes has OCD. And like, she doesn't feel like she can travel. She doesn't feel like she can go away with a friend for the night because she's worried about like his safety. And she's worried about, you know, so, so many other things. And it's like, it's so hard to like give her recommendations or kind of, you know, like my thoughts about things just in like a quick 30 minute coffee shop date, you know, like it's so heavy. There's so many things, but like, we have to make sure, you know, we talk about the accommodations, but we also instill hope that we also, you know, you know, hopefully give them some more support for themselves too. Uh, because like you said, it, it doesn't only just affect the child or the adolescent, it affects everybody. Um, so for those of us out here, uh, anyone listening who maybe doesn't or has never heard of the term family accommodation before, um, how would you describe that? Because we know research shows that 95, I think to 99% of caregivers or loved ones engage in accommodative behaviors. And I think the one to 5% who say that they don't probably are lying or they don't understand, right? Like they just don't know. Um, it's something that we all do. Uh even as like an OCD treatment provider myself, my, I, I find myself accommodating my five-year-old tons of times. <laughs> um, you know, it doesn't always help to just know what you need to do. Like, it's very hard to be a parent in this situation. So uh, could you please describe accommodations for us in the context of OCD and give us some examples? Um, because I, I feel like a lot of parents out there will be like, well, then what am I supposed to do? <laughs> like, how do I support my child without accommodating? And that's ultimately what it all comes down to. Sure. And, you know, accommodating behaviors for, for basically as far as giving you a broad definition with, with for the purpose of OCD, accommodating behaviors are seen as ways that other people, and let's looking with family members, respond differently, they behave differently uh, as a result of um, their child's OCD. So things that they're doing differently, how they maybe modify their behavior, things that they're not doing because they want to alleviate uh, their child's distress from the OCD. Um, so in, in cases of, uh, for kids, uh, you know, if you have, let's say a just right experience where the child needs to have a just right feeling in their body, um, perhaps it's that parents, uh, if the kid just needs, is, needs certain clothes, parents will allow the child to wear the same outfit again and again and again. Um, so if a kid could have some school uniform for whatever reason works well with them, this is something that I've seen before. And now they are wearing this outfit seven days a week. Parents are, um, 
washing the clothes. Um, it's <laughs> it's definitely going to pose challenges in that regard. Um, or it could be something that, you know, let's say another case, if someone has to brush their teeth a certain way, a kid has to brush their teeth a certain way. Well, now this person may be, you know, older, let's say a teenager, parents need to stand next to them and provide reassurance that they're brushing the right way. And this process can be uh, quite long, uh, you know, it could be half an hour and parents are put into positions that they would not normally be put in. Um, so, you know, if you think about it, um, how are family members, how are parents, how are they responding differently in this case because of their kids' OCD than they would in for uh, someone else or, or for if they have a sibling that they're responding in a much, much different way. And obviously, you know, each kid has their own needs, but where it's really now suddenly it's getting in the way for, for parents to even fulfill their roles too. Um, and I should also say, you know, the goal is to reduce accommodating behaviors. However, you know, it's not necessarily like so clear cut. It doesn't mean you pull the rug and, and try to reduce all the accommodating behaviors completely. That, that there's a certain nuance to it and in, in how, um, at least for, for I see with my work, um, bringing parents to, to reduce some of the behaviors, finding out which are which ones are more problematic and, and whether it's the parent's schedule or, or honestly helping the child move forward. Mm -hmm. And I know, I mean, it, it can really impact and affect like things that quite like they need to happen, right? Like going to school is one that comes to mind, right? Like going to school, I've worked with so many kids uh, or adolescents who like they're stuck in the shower. So, um, you know, like they miss going to school and so they just shower excessively or whatever it is. Um, and then the parents have to like renegotiate their work schedule to make sure that they can take the child to school. And it's like the the parent would often say, well, what am I supposed to do? Like not let them go to school. Um, the the exa Another example that comes to mind is um, one of the rituals that one of my uh, client's kiddos was struggling with was he just wouldn't sleep. Like he just refused to sleep. Like it was a, an anxiety reducing behavior of some kind, just like would stay up all night. Um and it was like, okay, well then that's going to like throw off the whole next day. Right. Like he's not going to, he's going to sleep all day. You know, like I, the mom and the dad, they felt the need to constantly be reminding him of like when he should go to bed and like checking in on him to make sure that he would get up in the morning. And it's like, that's so, it's so hard when it comes to these things that like, yes, you need to sleep and you need to go to bed and you need to go to school. So how can parents conceptualize or even like start to wrap their head around like stepping away, right? Because I feel like there's a child out there or a, or a parent out there who's like, well, if I don't, if I don't stand there and reassure him that he's brushing his teeth okay, if I don't take him to school when he's late, if I don't X, Y, Z, then he's just not going to do it. And I think I know the answer, right? Like we kind of want them to like, they have to kind of in a gradual way, hopefully with everybody's agreeance, right? Like we all agree to it and we do it on a, in a way that's challenging, but manageable, but we also need to, you know, allow those natural consequences to fall into place. Right. And then work with that. But how would you approach that? Like if there was a parent out there listening and they heard these examples and they're like, well, if I don't do that, he's never going to brush his teeth. If I don't wake him up, he's going to sleep all day. What would be your reaction to that? How do you work with that? Sure. And, and, you know, uh, Jenna, what I'll say is that when we thinking about that example, you mentioned um, with uh, your friend, with the person who were advising um, with the parents, 
you know, what I would where the, the kid was um, watching screens and then not able to go to school and parents were providing reassurance. I would I would want to just make a big, big list and to kind of help the parents get a sense of everything that they may be doing or not doing because of this person, this problematic behavior. So for instance, it may be parents say 15 times, please turn off the TV, please turn off the TV, please turn off the TV. Can you please turn off the TV? Could also be that parents refuse to turn off the TV, or perhaps they're engages in a battle with the OCD where parents turn off the TV, child turns back on the TV, parents turn off the TV and, you know, because, um, and that really get a sense of everything that is going on. And I also, this is going to highlight too, where are the parents' reservations? Is it that they don't want to have their kid just have an Armageddon on them? And when I say the kid, I'm really referring to the OCD too, because that's really what I want to highlight is when there's the huge outbursts, that's really OCD speaking. So, you know, do they want to avoid the, the OCD outbursts? Um, or is it even hard saying no for the parent because it brings in certain emotional states too? Um, perhaps it brings uh, guilt, um, feelings that they're being a bad parent. Um, and this is really going to like create a very, very, very broad picture. And then when we have this list of all these behaviors, well, now this provides an opportunity to kind of look for me to look alongside with parents and say, okay, like what, what is something that you want to work towards for yourself? Do you want to work towards doing a behavior that may bring up feelings of guilt, but learn that you can handle it, even if you have that guilt that, hey, you know, I can take the TV, put it into a room and lock it. And that's, you know, this is maybe going to have an outburst. Or do you want to work that like you're going to be able to learn to handle OCD's outbursts a little bit more? And the idea is, as parent learns to handle this own emotional state that it brings, well, ideally, lo and behold, the kid can tolerate their distress as well that comes with it too. So that's kind of like how we would slowly pull back and figure it out. And this is, can be a very gradual process. Now, I mean, if you have a kid who's not going to school, that obviously we want to work on getting them to that behavior. And if there's a parent uh, that is having some type of accommodating behavior, that may be where the focus is. But that's how kind of we tease it out and, and figure out which what to work on with the parents. Yeah, such a good point. Um, it's and, and that's like reminiscent of kind of where I was at at the beginning, right? Like it's an exposure for everybody. Like, yes, you are going to have to sit with your own discomfort that like it feels uncomfortable for you as the mom or the caregiver, right? Like to feel like you are like, it's going to feel like you're that bad parent. But this is where I also like to remind my caregivers too, that like, just because you feel guilty about something, it doesn't mean that you've done anything bad. It just means that you've done something different, right? Like you are doing something different. You're not giving into the OCD, right? Because rationally and logically, you know, you've made this really awesome decision to do the evidence-based thing and to get off the wheel of continuing to do these behaviors that you think are helpful, but are actually not helpful. Um, and I always remind my the caregivers that I work with, that it's like the biggest act of love. Like to me, that's what love is like, um, just as like my, like my own parenting side is coming out, but like, I know some parents out there, um, they feel like, you know, they just want to have a happy kid. They just want to have like, you know, like you're doing a good job. If your kid is happy, 
I don't know. I feel like I'm doing a good job if I'm willing as a parent to do the difficult thing for the betterment of my child in the long run. And like, that's what I have to keep in mind for myself. That's what I try to keep in mind for the parents that I work with, like that you are doing a huge act of love by doing the difficult thing now. Like it feels harsh. It feels like your child might be suffering even even though we try to make this all challenging, but manageable, it still feels really harsh in some ways. And you're going to second guess yourself. You're going to second guess whether this is the right thing to do. And it's just like the biggest act of love to be able to walk away from that toothbrush and say, like, I'm not, I'm not watching this anymore because I love you. And I don't want to make, you know, your worry monster worse. Um, Which brings me to the kind of second piece we often use that with kids, right? Like something with kids and adolescent work, it's really important to use language, obviously that resonates with them. It's important to be able to talk to them on their level. Um, And a lot of times we use things like the worry monster. I know that that's helped me with my five-year-old lots of times. So what are some other fun, uh, maybe creative ways that you can work with the family to kind of create that team together to really reinforce the fact that it's like, it's the child and the family together against OCD. It's not the family against the OCD and the kid. Sure. Yeah. What this question is making me think of one of the first things, you know, when I'm, when I'm meeting with a kid, we're we're warming up, getting to know the kid, getting to know the parents and the other, everyone sitting in that first session. And then kind of, as there's been more of that warm up. I'll ask them, I'll be like, you know, what are all the ways that your worries or fears have gotten in the way of you being a kid, being able to go to school, getting along with your parents, with your siblings, just getting in the way of you being a kid and being stuck. And then this provides the outlet for now, let's try to identify all the things that are going on, what their kid is doing, what parents are doing in response to the OCD. And um, within that that context, we, you know, we start identifying these behaviors. And what I really will try to hammer and, and with something like the worry monster, the worry monster is essentially what we, we create is a system where the kid is still the kid and OCD is functioning as the worry monster. And it's basically causing the child and parents to respond differently. So what, you know, we list all of these behaviors that are going on. And then now we give a name for it. So, you know, we're like, okay, well, this OCD, this worry monster, it's getting away of you having the fun and fun, having fun. You're having to ask your parents to stand with you while you're brushing your teeth. Parents are providing constant reassurance that you're brushing your teeth the right way. Um, And lo and behold, we, we give a name for it and, and we call this, okay, this is this worry monster. What do you want to call it? We can give a name to the worry monster. Some people will call it Voldemort or, you know, whatever the, you know, stinky breath. They'll they'll come up with some name, which is essentially the name they're going to come for OCD. And now we can view, you can view it as a challenge, something to fight against with the, with the OCD. Um, And, and what I would say too, with specifically something like a context of the worry monster I really want to do my best to really hammer for both kid for parents to externalize this uh, this this concept. So I'll have them draw a picture of uh, of the worry monster, draw a picture if they decide it's Voldemort, draw a picture if it's stinky breath, whatever it is, and um, we can put all the rules down, all the compulsions that that happen. And as kid starts breaking them at more consistently, as parents start breaking them, 
Well, lo and behold, you can cross off the rules and you can become more of a visual sense of, of how the child is able to make progress. So that that is one um, really effective way. And, and honestly, within that, again, just finding it that, hey, this is like a challenge and something to kind of learn to like work forward to and, and show that you can prove. And this is a challenge. And I really believe that you can do it. And I really believe that you can fight back against the OCD. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts? This is totally random, but what are your thoughts on like rewards and stuff like that? I don't know. I'm just thinking of kids who, and I honestly haven't worked with children in so long. Um, and when I did, it was like residential or inpatient. So they were obviously super severe um, and their insight wasn't always the best, but um, yeah. What would be your thoughts about rewards. I know parents out there that I've worked with, they're like, well, they should just, they should want to go to school, right? Like they should want to go to school, but it's like, well, they don't, right? Like we don't. And we also have to accept like where they're at, right? Like we can't continue to just like wish that they had this intrinsic motivation to go to school because they don't, right? Like, and to wish that now is just a fantasy. So they don't have the motivation to go to school. Maybe one day they will, but we also can teach them too that like they don't need motivation in order to act, right? Like they need to just be committed. And I don't, I don't know, where do you stand with like rewards and or anything else that might be helpful in getting the child on board with certain uh homework assignments? Sure. And and, and you had mentioned intrinsic motivation. And what I would say is there's extrinsic, ex- extrinsic motivation and intrinsic motivation. They can sound so similar that I can jumble my words just like I did. And extrinsic motivation is, you know, you give some type of outside factor to increase a person's motivation. So, you know, whether it's um, going out for ice cream and so forth, it's something that they're, they're, they can, that they get some type of positive thing for for further accomplishment and then intrinsic motivation is just this internal sense of i feel good because i accomplished x y and z and and i'd say in an ideal state um you get that intrinsic motivation but i think i think just expecting that a kid is going to have that may be an unrealistic expectation and i don't think there's anything wrong with having some type of reward some type of positive factor for um for doing really challenging stuff and and you know it, it, for many parents it can feel like they're bribing their kid which can um you know it can lead to some hesitation um but if you think about it like you know one thing i guess honestly is when i was in graduate school and i worked really hard on an assignment i rewarded myself by going out Chinese food that night and you know so theoretically that was an an extrinsic reward and so I think it's just important is you know kids are struggling but like they're probably not choosing to be in an untreatment so I think it's fine if you set up a reward system it just needs to be thought out so you don't want to just give them suddenly a reward for facing their fear for for doing exposure once you want it to be like kind of like more thought out so if like they're breaking like a certain compulsion consistently that it's it's all devised out like if you do x amount of exposures well this can lead to a certain amount of points that you know you can turn in and and get ice cream and you know in this case um you know it can be very thought out with a, from a reward system how a kid is utilizing it too. Um, the, the one thing though, I guess the one thing that I'd also want to caution is don't give massive rewards 
right away for just for very small things because then that is going to take away a kid's motivation um so if you were to you know there was the world cup happened recently so you know if you had some crazy thing like you know a kid did a you know one exposure and they got a signed uh, Lionel Messi jersey well you know I, you're gonna have to really up it then if you want to give a reward so you, you want to make sure that the rewards are thoughtful but also they're not overblown and, and mm -hmm. too big yeah that makes such sense and um also that they don't always have to be monetary right like it doesn't always have to be a dollar or like go get ice cream like it could be like you get to pick whatever we eat for dinner right like if that is somehow motivating to your child right like my child is super motivated like when we're all sitting down playing mario kart together like that would that could be a reward right like you do your exposure and we'll sit down and all three of us like without us having our phones like we are just going to sit down and we'll play we'll play mario kart with you right like that could be it doesn't always, it could be having friends over. It doesn't always have to be this like monetary thing where you make yourself broke. Um, but yeah, I love the idea of like externalizing the anxiety and OCD, like the worry monster, um, kind of like, you know, banding together to recognize like who the real problem is. Like the problem is not the child. The problem is this worry monster that has really kind of taken them over. Um, one thing that I sometimes get stuck with, and I know a lot of people out there might also get stuck with, um, I've worked with uh, kids in the past who, and, and to go backwards, you mentioned, I call it the extinction burst, um, like how when parents will, you know, suddenly stop reinforcing these behaviors, they will pull away from some of their accommodations and it could re it could end up in, in an extinction burst, which is where we temporarily see an increase in the unwanted behavior, right? So I think we can all resonate with this, right? Like if, if we had typically uh, always at the store, anytime we go to Target, we get our kids a piece of candy. And then all of a sudden we decide, you know, that for whatever reason, we're not going to do that. We're going to say no to the piece of candy. Our kids are not going to be like, okay, like that makes total sense, right? Like they're going to start to increase how many times they ask. They're going to plead and beg. And maybe they even go and ask their other caregiver or they start to yell and have a tam temper tantrum. I think on some level, we all know that like, it doesn't make sense to give the child the piece of candy at the peak of their temper tantrum, because we know that what we've just done is we've just created new learning that says, Hey, in order to get what you want, you kick and scream and, and scream that you hate me. Right. Um, but we're also, a lot of us are not those parents who would sit through that temper tantrum, right? Like that we would just give them the piece of candy to get out of that anxiety provoking situation ourselves. So I think one, like, really educating family members about the existence of an extinction burst, that that's not necessarily a sign that you're doing something wrong. If anything, it's just a sign that you are like really kind of turning a corner and you need to stay the course, right? Um, if what it is that you're wanting to do is to kind of extinguish and, you know, get rid of that behavior, whatever that might be. Um, but I'm wondering what you do in the event of threats to safety, so sometimes children and adolescents, they can be, and, and maybe it feels very real for them in the moment. Sometimes, you know, it can be in hindsight, like a, a threat, right? Like, well, if I just say that I'm going to hurt myself, or if I say this, um, you know, sometimes they can get really violent with parents too. Um, so what would be your advice to parents or caregivers in that situation? Like when, or if their child, um, 
kind of is like threatening their safety, whether or not that's something that they're actually truly concerned about. Like, how would you empower parents to kind of conceptualize those threats that their child might make or any other like violent types of behaviors? Because that can happen during an extinction burst. We hope that it doesn't, um, but it certainly can. So any thoughts about that would be amazing. Sure. Uh, What I would say is threats to safety should always be taken seriously. And if there is, um, let's say, a history of self-harm or like a suicide attempt, even more so. Um, So, uh, you know, in some of those cases, if a kid has a major outburst and you, you know, you would have to then, if they have certain objects that where they could potentially do some damage to themselves, well, you would have to remove them. So if there were like scissors, you'd have to to put them in and lock them in a separate place. So so none of that type of damage um could could happen. Uh and, and what um what I would say uh if there's a real again threat and so forth, what would be most important is for one family member, whoever it is who who's working on it, to, to just kind of try to remain as calm as they can and just sit forward and know that this is an outburst and that it will go down. And again, you know, at that point you could monitor, um, you know, if, if there really was a real threat that they lo and behold could pick up an object and hurt themselves, um, that you would be able to provide that stability and, and prevent that from happening. Uh, let's say though, in another example, um, where with the extinction outburst that they, you know, the parent does not give in to a co- an accommodation and kid is completely destructive, tears down their room and so forth. Just it's important for parents to just remain as much as they can neutral and, and just um, if need be like, you know, put, you know, the kid can remain in their room and the door is closed and parent just kind of remain neutral as much as they can. And then afterwards, when child calms down, because again, thinking about these outbursts, they don't stay forever. Um, And at that point, you know, child would have to be involved in the cleaning up process of their room. Um, The the one thing is really to to really impress, what I really would want to impress on parents is these outbursts, these high, I mean, much more than a 10 out of 10, they don't last forever. So just keeping in that in mind is that this high emotional, emotional state will eventually go down. And at that point, that is when a parent can talk and and can kind of have more of a reasonable talk. But if you try to have like a reasonable talk, if you try to get in a back and forth when someone is having a full on outburst, panic attack, and so forth, it's just going to lead to more conflict, more frustration, and it's never a good thing. So you really just want to take a step back. If it seems like uh, your kid is going World War Three on you, you know, just either if you need to be there from a safety standpoint, do your best to just stand still, you know, don't show too much of emotional reaction. If it seems like they're just having a major outburst and you need to even take a step back, that's fine. Do whatever you can and just wait till the kind of the, the situation lowers, the intensity lowers. And then at that point, you can have um, maybe even a little bit later, a, a, a somewhat of a reasonable uh, conversation of like what expectations are and, you know, how that you, know, you that is an unacceptable behavior. Yeah, <clears throat> it's a good reminder um, for everyone, right? I, I feel like during those outbursts, we 
as parents, we want to fix, right? Like we want to fix, we want to fix and make them feel better. And that's just not the time to be able to do it, right? Like our only job in that moment is to really just maintain safety and to keep ourselves calm so that we don't contribute to further escalation. And yeah, realizing that it is going to come down, like the dust will settle at some point. It, it might not be pretty. Um, it might take longer than we would have wanted, but it's all in the effort of doing the hard thing now so that things can get better in the future. Because like we're saying, right, it can't continue the way that it is. So we have to do something different. So um I know we're wrapping up here. I would love for you to give some last minute kind of um, maybe some advice or just, you know, like words of encouragement for any uh, caregivers out there, any parents out there, maybe they're struggling. They feel like their kiddo is struggling. Um, they're not quite sure where to start. Um, this all is so much easier said than done. Obviously, that's why it's so wonderful if you can to be able to work with a therapist, but even if they can't work with a therapist, maybe what are some things that they can do to start taking back some of their, um, you know, start holding some of their boundaries themselves, maybe learn a little bit more. What can they do to start like practicing some actionable steps? I would say a big piece is just finding support. Um, so if you're feeling really alone, knowing that you can have a, a team. So if, if you happen to be married, well, you know, try to your best to kind of rely on one of one another. So it's not falling all on one parent. If, if they're in a situation where it's just a, a single parent for whatever reason, well, perhaps you can lean on, um, you know, your parent, the grandparent, you know, you can kind of just someone who can basically provide some support. So you're feeling less alone with your, with your kids struggles from the OCD. Um, as far as, uh, 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 any additional steps? Well, I, I do think like if you're really feeling very lost and this is extremely overwhelming, I would say then yes, you should definitely connect with a, a clinician, um, someone who specializes in working with kids and with families and with, with OCD, exposure response prevention. Um, there's also something, uh, space supporting parents of anxious children emotions. It was a, a program created by, by Dr. Ellie Leibowitz. And uh, in this program, it's basically for, let's say, if kids don't want to participate in treatment and how parents um, uh, can respond differently, ways that they can reduce their accommodating behaviors. So there are a lot of therapists who have a, a background and experience uh, in doing the, the space protocol and providing this type of treatment where kids don't want to be involved. I happen to be one of them. Um, but yeah, there's book, uh, Dr. Leibowitz has written a book, so you could, you could pick up a book, uh, something of that nature too. And, and really kind of within that realm too, if this is just a, a parent's first foray, again, um, you could go to the International OCD Foundation's website, um, iocdf.org, and they list providers, um, you can find support groups too. And that also, again, it's just the main thing is it's very important for parents to not feel lost and alone because that's just gonna make the situation more difficult. So finding other parents who have similar experiences can start to provide a little bit of light in feeling lost. And then the, the last thing you know, I would really wanna impress is Again, there are other people who have gone through these struggles and they have been able to get through. Um, so there is light in, at the end of the tunnel as as much as it may be hard to see at this moment. 
That's so amazing to end on. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your expertise. Um, where can people find more about you, find out more about your practice and all the awesome things that you have going on? Sure. So my, my practice is in the Westwood area of Los Angeles. Um, I see people for in-person visits. I also do um, virtual appointments and I'm licensed in both California and New York. So if you're in either of those two states, I can, I can provide treatment um, for you. My, so my website is uh, www.drjessiespiegel.com, very creative website. Um, but that is really, I'd say the best way to, to reach out to me. Um, Jenna, I, I see you and, and you know, how amazing you are with social media and you inspire me and I will be upfront with you. You also intimidate me with how- Oh my gosh, I am such a nerd. I am such a nerd. Please don't. <laughs> I was just laughing with someone today. Like the only way I can even do it is because I like kind of lie to myself and pretend that no one sees it. <laughs> and so like, I, but I, I have this problem now when someone says something like that, like it's very dissonant in my brain. Like it doesn't match my brain because I've been convincing myself this whole time, like, la, 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 like your grandma is still the only one who watches you. I guess not, but no, please. Oh my gosh. I love everything that you do. Guys, Jesse, I'm always constantly getting messages about like, oh my gosh, like it's so hard to find an OCD therapist. It's so hard to find a therapist who actually knows what they're talking about. And even the people who I'm like, I like will kind of send them to, it's like, I hope that they're going to get good treatment, right? Like, I hope that they're going to say things the way that I would say them. I hope that they will help you understand OCD the way that I understand it. And I know that if people came to you, they would get really good treatment. So thank you so much for coming here. Um, anytime you want to get on social, Jesse, you tell me and we'll do something together. <laughs> oh, I, 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 I know where to go. Awesome. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to pick up tips from you. <laughs> for sure. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I will make sure to put those notes in the show notes so you guys can um, find out more about Dr. Spiegel anytime. And especially if you're in California or New York, be sure to check them out. Um, thank you guys so much. And thank you again to Jesse. Thank you. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. For more information and resources, head to my website at www.jennaoverbaugh.com. From there, you can sign up for my email newsletter so you can make sure that you are the most up-to-date about upcoming resources, podcast episodes, blogs, challenges, and more. Also, check me out on Instagram at jenna.overbaugh and tune into some other episodes here while you're at it. As always, if you have a free minute, it would mean the world to me if you could please subscribe and rate this podcast. Subscriptions and ratings help me keep the podcast going and help me spread the word to other people who need these resources and they otherwise may not get them. With that said, thank you guys so much for tuning in. I really love creating these episodes for you. And until next time, keep doing all the hard things.